Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 133, A Word to Conjure With on Theurgy in Late Antiquity and Beyond. We couldn't resist the pun in this episode's title. Theurgy has become, in the history of Western esotericism, a word to conjure with in both senses of the term. In this episode, following on the thematic, somewhat diachronic look at subtle body theories, in episode 130, we want again to pull back and broaden our focus before diving into the evidence for Jamblichus' thought and his great debate with Porphyry about theurgia, God working, an enigmatic form of ritual practice or collection of ritual practices devoted to the elevation of the soul away from the body and toward the gods through, well, practical means of some kind. Because as it turns out, theurgy has become a word to conjure with in Western esotericism, which has grown way beyond its humble roots in late antique religious practice. What exactly is theurgy? Well, it depends on who's asking and when they are alive. If we're looking at the origins of the term, our story probably begins with the Chaldean oracles sometime in the 2nd century CE, when the term first starts to show up, although actually the term theurgia doesn't occur in the oracles, as we'll discuss. But we shall see a number of different uses of the term even before we get to the end of late antiquity, including, but not limited to, theurgy is evil sorcery. Theurgy is the culmination of philosophy and a necessary salvific ritual practice for philosophers. Theurgy is Christian liturgy and a necessary salvific ritual practice for Christians. All of these descriptions of theurgy from antiquity have in common the idea of some form of practice. Theurgists are doing stuff, not talking or contemplating in their easy chairs, but performing rituals of some kind. But aside from that, these accounts are all pretty different. But if we broaden the scope of our inquiry to take in later refashioning of the term, we find it used in a number of exotic contexts. And these include both strands of Western esoteric thought and of the scholarship of Western esotericism. It turns out we can trace a very long history of the term theurgy within Western esotericism. Stops on the way will include the usual suspects and some less usual suspects. The Chaldean oracles, Porphyry, Iamblichus, Proclus, St. Augustine, and the pseudo-Dionysius, Ficino, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, Giordano Bruno, Freemasonries of various sorts, and then the adoption of the term by occultism in the 19th century. And that's not even the whole story, but that itinerary leads, as so often in the history of Western esotericism, from the occultists to the scholars. To see what I mean, we can take a glance at the Dictionary of Gnosis and Western Esotericism, published in 2005 by Brill, edited by Wouter Hanegraaff and others. If we search for the term theurgy in the dictionary, we don't find an entry on the subject, but we find the term used all the time as a secondary term of discourse, sometimes taken to mean totally different things, as far as I can tell. No one bothers to define what they mean by it, so it's a bit difficult to say for sure. In the entry on alchemy, under the subheading 
antiquity to the 12th century, we find that the alchemical corpus attributed to Jabir, also known as the pseudo-Jabirian corpus, dealt with, among other topics, theurgy. We're just expected to know what that means in this alchemical context. But I'm guessing the claim is not that Jabir is engaging with late Platonist ritual practices, because he's not. Uh, the podcast will return to the great Jabir. In the article on Bernardus Silvestris, the 12th century thinker often linked to the Platonizing school of Chartres, as it's called, although I think it should be the, more called the Platonizing scene of Chartres, we learn that Bernardus learned about theurgy from Martianus Capella's On the Marriage of Mercury and Philology. Now, that wonderful Latin work never mentions the term theurgia. So whatever it is that Bernardus learned from Martianus, it's something a modern scholar of Western esotericism wants to call theurgy, not anything that Martianus himself calls theurgy or Bernardus calls theurgy. The podcast will return to the great Martianus and to the great Bernardus. Under Cagliostro, we learn that Cagliostro's high Egyptian Freemasonry taught its initiates to perform prodigious facts of both theurgy and healing. And in the entry on Martin de Pascali, we learn of his 18th century fringe Masonic order that, quote, this cult was a theurgy in that it involved and activated the divine energies, end of quote. The term theurgy never appears in de Pascali's works. Clearly, in the scholarship, a given thinker needn't actually mention theurgy by name to be describable as being involved in theurgy. And equally clearly, the different scholars writing these different dictionary entries mean different things when they use the term. Or at least we have to assume so. It's hard to imagine that strong links are being made between the thought of Jabir in some early Islamicate uh, work of alchemy and someone like Martin de Pascali. The waters get further muddied because a lot of Masonic groups, and later occultists, did actively call what they were doing theurgy, and they too often meant different things by it. Uh, one of the disciples of de Pascali, Paul-Henri Dietrich Baron de Holbach, I don't know if I'm supposed to give that a French or a German pronunciation, but never mind, he claimed in an anti-Christian tract entitled Le Christianisme dévoilé, published in 1766 in London, that Christian sacramentalism was a puerile and ridiculous ceremony, but it was a sort of ripoff of the true theurgy. So that's a nice inversion of the kinds of arguments we find in the early Christian apologists like Clement and Origen, that whatever is good in polytheist culture must have been stolen from Moses, right? Here, theurgy is being used in a sort of detournement of that opposition, saying whatever's there in Christianity is actually a kind of debased version of the true spiritual techniques, which are theurgy. That's just one example. Now, in 19th century occultism, it becomes impossible, really, to separate the scholarship from the esotericism. Uh, Blavatsky's Secret Doctrine, published in 1888, refers to ancient theurgy and sort of adds it to the spicy mix of ancient wisdom traditions that HPB is constructing in that work. And in The Key to Theosophy, she equates theosophy, spiritualism, and theurgy, as taught by the divine Iamblichus. So those are all the same thing, theosophy, spiritualism, and theurgy. Now, a major force in the dissemination of ancient theurgic materials to occult milieu was, of course, 
the extraordinary publishing output of the great Thomas Taylor, who had made a translation of the Chaldean Oracle fragments available to the English-speaking world in 1797. Is Taylor to be considered a scholar or a Western esotericist? Well, both, really. The indefatigable G.R.S. Mead would publish a translation of the Chaldean Oracle fragments in 1908 as part of the wonderfully titled Echoes from the Gnosis series, and he's basing his overtly theosophical, syncretic uh, take on the oracles on Wilhelm Kroll's 1894 Teubner text of the oracle fragments, which was itself the first attempt to put the Chaldean fragments on a critical scholarly footing that would satisfy modern text critics. This is another example of how the material was edited and put on a scientific footing and then absorbed straight back into occultism. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, also late 19th century occultists, had a whole lively debate about what they were doing when they did magic, and theurgy was a key term in this debate, as we'll see in the podcast. The majority of the initiatory dialogue spoken by the Hierophant to the candidate for the grade of Theoricus was lifted from the oracles in a free translation by Wynne Westcott. So, you know, the ancient theurgic material is being constantly reread and re reinscribed in occultism, both theosophical and golden donical. But these occultists were not getting the term theurgy from ancient grimoires or anything like that. Like everybody else in the late 19th century, they were reading about it in scholarly publications, mostly from Germany and elsewhere, like Kroll's edition of the Oracles that we just referred to, or earlier, Lübeck's Aglaa Famos, if I said that right, which was published in 1829, and is, you know, an attempt to build a picture of late polytheist religion in the Roman Empire, looking at the Hermetica in a critical way, trying to come up with the definition of Gnosticism from a history of religions perspective, all that sort of academic activity that was going on in Germany in the 19th century. The occultists are absorbing that stuff, and putting it straight into their occultist practice. And some of the more scholarly esotericists, like G.R.S. Mead, were writing works which hover somewhere between practitioner manuals and useful scholarly translations, a bit like Thomas Taylor had been doing in the early 19th century. Though Taylor remains one of a kind in his time, place, and idiosyncratic devotion to late Platonism as a way of life. So this back-and-forth flow of information between scholars and practitioners has continued ever since, as the sample of entries from the Dictionary of Gnosis and Western Esotericism is an illustration. This is what is often discussed in the study of current traditions as a culture, but this is academic a culture, right? Um, the same muddle or muddiness in our categories applies when we look more broadly at modern Western esoteric literature and at modern scholarship on West, Western esotericism. And by modern here, I mean 20th century and beyond. To take just a few examples from modern Western esotericism first, and then we'll turn to modern scholarship on Western esotericism. In 1930, Edward John Langford Garston published a book entitled Theurgy or the Hermetic Practice, a Treatise on Spiritual Alchemy. Okay, so theurgy equals hermetic? equals alchemical, and the whole thing is spiritual. So that's a, a nice example of the kind of stuff you find in occultism. And we could adduce a mountain of current Western esoteric material using the term theurgy in a number of interesting and quite different ways. 
Indeed, this very podcast has interviewed Randall Hall, theurgic saxophonist extraordinaire, whose music engages very directly with ancient materials, like the Chaldean oracles and Orphica in their original Greek form, as uh, reconstructed by scholars, but who understands theurgy in a performance context as a kind of special form of communication between the musician and the audience, which ideally should create ritual symbolic elevation in those listening to the music. Now, Hall is a saxophonist, but he's getting his theurgy from Majersik's scholarly English translation of the Chaldean Oracles. Uh, his Greek text comes from the up-to-date Budet edition of De Place. But his instincts are from the occultural avant-garde, I would say. To take another example, we could mention Jake Stratton Kent, a modern occultist who's given a number of polemical communiques addressed more or less directly to the small community of occultist ritual practitioners doing ceremonial magic. And he's taking an anti-theurgy position, calling for an active embracing of goetea, which to the ancients meant nasty, harmful sorcery, but which to Stratton Kent and uh, magicians like him, I think is more like the punk rock, hands-dirty, chthonic kind of magic, while theurgy represents both the vertically-oriented ascent magic exemplified by Iamblichus, but also more vaguely, more generally, the sanitized kind of Francis Yeatsy image of spiritual magic, which has nothing to do with that sort of, you know, dead people and um, conjuring up specters and stuff like that. So for such a dichotomy to be intelligible to Stratton Kent's audience, both Theurgia and Goetea need to have been processed already by the occulture and given relatively well understood meanings, or at least ballpark understood meanings. Now, both of these later esotericists, Randall Hall and Jake Stratton Kent, are well informed not only by first order Western esotericism, but also by second order scholarship on Western esotericism. So again, our dividing line between scholarship and uh, source material is blurry. And when we get to Theurgy the Band, and there are a ton of bands called Theurgy, but the only one linked uh, listed in the great Encyclopedia Metallum is described as technical, brutal death metal. Well, we know where they're coming from with this band name if we are acculturated in the same way as Jake Stratton Kent or Randall Hall. If we turn to scholarship proper, and as I've mentioned, it's a bit difficult to turn to scholarship proper when there's so much bleed between scholarship and source material, but let's take a sprinkling of examples of works that people will undoubtedly think of as scholarship. Stephen Klukas's 2006 paper, John Dee's Angelic Conversations and the Ars Notoria, Renaissance Magic and Medieval Theurgy. Here, theurgy is the practices of scrying and angelic spirit summoning practiced by John Dee and his mediums. And this is, I think, largely the same meaning as is intended in the title of the 2012 collected volume, Invoking Angels, Theurgic Ideas and Practices, 13 to 16th Centuries, edited by Claire Fanger. So, Latinate angelic addressative practices from the Middle Ages, from the Latinate Middle Ages, can be described as theurgic. But in Geller's 1977 article, Jesus's Theurgic Powers parallels in the Talmud and incantation bowls, Jesus has theurgic powers, 
which do not involve summoning angels or scrying, but performing the miracles we find in the Bible and non-canonical accounts of Jesus. So what's the connection between uh, Elizabethan magus talking to angels and Jesus? Well, they're both doing theurgy, apparently. In the work of the great Gershom Sholem, we see a change in the development of the Hechelot Merkava textual corpus, which Sholem takes as a sign of, quote, the transformation of mysticism into theurgy, end of quote. So here we have another binary of two very difficult terms, mysticism and theurgy. But again, in this case, Sholem is A, using the term as a non-historical sort of general term that everyone's supposed to know what it means, and B, taking it as somehow having an explanatory power that should be evident to the reader. Now, in a recent PhD thesis, Nicholas Marshall has given further examples of the use of the term in discussions, scholarly discussions of Gnosticism and Tibetan Buddhism. So theurgy has gone international in a big way in scholarship. Now, all of this is interesting and needs detailed treatment, but I think that Marshall is right when he says, quote, it has been commonplace to take what little can be understood about theurgy in the Neoplatonist texts and compare these understandings with later or foreign traditions, which in turn potentially leads to a backflow of information from the later traditions back to theurgy. This is what I think has happened in theurgy studies, which has resulted in so much confusion over the term. End of quote. In other words, we don't know that much about ancient theurgy, and there's been a tendency to interpret what the ancients meant by the term theurgy through what we mean by the term, and we in this case is a very long and complicated development with multiple different strands to it, right? So we could be Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, or it could be Gershom Scholem, or it could be um, your humble podcaster. So these understandings of the term, which come from later Western esotericism and or scholarship thereof, often, to be sure, in dialogue with rereading of the Platonists' own words from antiquity and constructions of what the Chaldean oracles are supposed to be on about and all that sort of stuff, have led to a kind of evolving trans-historical category called theurgy, which has very porous and vague definitional boundaries, and modern occultural and scholarly occultural understandings of the term slosh backwards in time to influence what we think the ancients meant by the term, which in turn influences modern culture, which in turn, you get the idea. You end up with a black metal band from Tennessee called Theurgy. So if you're asking, so what is Theurgy anyway, gentle listener, I say again, it depends on who's asking. And I'll add that the answer to the question must be a pretty complex one based on the little tip of the iceberg we've seen in this episode so far. It's a really long story. Now, at this stage, we should return from the verdant and fecund feels of freewheeling a culture in the modern internet age and try to get boring again. Our first task, before we move on to the work and thought of the great Iamblichus, is to review what we do know about ancient theurgy in theory and practice, trying to clear away the clutter of interpretations of the evidence a little bit. But of course, we then need to look at the interpretations of the evidence. As we've been trying to point out in this episode so far, the interpretations of theurgy in later thought are, well, a living tradition of theurgy, among other things. But let's go step by step, as we like to do here at the Schwepp, and proceed to kind of start to nibble away at the beginnings of that very long story. 
So let's look at our earliest and most relevant antique evidence for the terms theurgia, theurgos, and related words like theurgica, and then take a quick look at what scholarship has made of this proper antique theurgy, if that's what we're looking at. So the term theurgia is a Greek word, which first appears in the context of the Chaldean oracles, though not in the surviving fragments themselves. We refer listeners to episode 75 and 76 of the podcast for some good introduction to the oracles and the theurgic material found therein. The closest thing we have from our oracle fragments to a solid reference to theurgy is in fragment 153 de Place, line 3. And it's a doozy, actually. The line is, Ugar huf gelen piptusi theurgoi, for the theurgists do not fall into the herd that is subject to fate. So whoever these theurgoi are, the theurgists, they are an elite, right? They're not subject to fate, and not being subject to fate, as we've seen a lot in the podcast recently, is one of the top goals of late antique religions and late antique philosophy. So is that the first reference to the word theurgos in the Greek corpus? Maybe. The term theurgos actually might first appear in Nicomachus of Gerasa. Uh, it depends on when we date the oracles to, and it depends on when we date Nicomachus to. But he may well have been either living at the same time as the notional Julians, who are somehow responsible for the oracles, or he might have even lived a little before them. But the reference to Hoi Theurgoi, the theurgists, in Nicomachus, it must be said, unfortunately crops up in a juncture in the text where the text really does seem to be corrupt. So this might be an addition or emendation from someone else. However, it's been repeated over and over in the scholarship that Nicomachus is the earliest reference to theurgy, and this is just wrong. So the work is called Excerpts from Nicomachus on Music in its surviving form, and in these excerpts, Nicomachus cites the theurgists and says, incidentally, that they are really into some esoteric teachings about the vowels and planetary correspondences with the vowels. But as for theurgia, theurgy itself, the earliest really, really solid appearance of the word is, wait for it, in Iamblichus's De Mysteries, late 3rd century. Iamblichus puts it in the mouth of Porphyry. He says in this work that Porphyry is talking about theurgy, but whether or not he's quoting Porphyry directly or paraphrasing is a big question, a question to which we shall devote some time when we get to the great theurgy debate. Now, generally speaking, when the Platonists after Iamblichus cite the oracles, which they do a lot, they tend to refer to them as doctrines of the theurgists or the Chaldeans. So, Hans Levy, in his magnum opus, The Chaldean Oracles and Theurgy, has a useful section looking at the style of citation employed by the Platonists when they cite the oracles. And this is really important because it tells us a lot about the oracles themselves. Thus, the vast number of references to theurgy and theurgists are found in Platonists, but very often in the context of citing the Chaldean oracles. And this is where we get most of our oracle fragments from. So, we note that the term appears in the Platonists, not in the oracle fragments, not in the text of the oracle fragments themselves, but how skeptical do we want to be? The Platonists universally agree, as does later evidence like the Suda, that it is with the two Julians who are somehow meant to be 
responsible for the Chaldean oracles, whether even if they are legendary figures, it doesn't matter really for our purposes, they are associated with this term theurgy. And uh, Julian, the, the son, is meant to have written a book called Theurgica, which would be something like Writings on Theurgy. So I don't think we're justified to be super skeptical that there was a lot more reference to theurgy and the theurges in the Chaldean oracles than survives. However, if we really want to look for the word theurgy in a primary text, we look to Iamblichus. Now, theurgy for Iamblichus in the De Mysteries, and we'll be talking about that text quite a bit, is primarily the priestly or hieratic art associated much more broadly with wise barbarian nations. So theurgy is something that priests do. In the case of the porphyry Iamblichus debate, Iamblichus is writing under the pseudonym Abamon. So he is writing as an Egyptian temple priest. And theurgy is being depicted by him as something that the Egyptian priests do as a matter of course. Obviously, this has led to a lot of interesting debates over the evidence, uh, over the kinds of cultural constructions these philosophers, Porphyry and Iamblichus, are employing. How much actual Egyptian thought and practice is involved in Iamblichian theurgy, for example? That's a big question, especially because in Book 8 of the De Mysteries, Iamblichus gives us pretty much our only direct Platonist references to Hermetica, to the teachings of Hermes, which are, as we know, Egyptian wisdom literature of some sort, and themselves employ the temple cult motif in a big way. They may even have had their origins, I'm talking about the philosophic Hermetica later on, right? Not the entire corpus of Hermetica. These philosophic or theoretical Hermetica may well have had their origins in the temple priestly milieu, if Christian Bull is right. For Iamblichus, the terms theurgy and hieratike, priestly, seem to be used pretty much interchangeably. The philosophic theurgist is being reimagined as a priest, perhaps even the true priest of the true elite religion. But we'll have more to say on that in upcoming episodes. But the question then arises, where are the oracles in all this? Where are the Chaldeans? Now, the term theurgy and related concepts, despite a lot of skepticism that is possible here, I would say first appears in the connection of the Chaldean oracles. Um, and this is based on reconstructing a lot of testimony that we don't have anymore. So for example, Augustine citing Porphyry in Latin about Theurgia and uh, piecing together a lot of things. It still seems to me that even if the Chaldean oracles didn't really have anything like what Iamblichus is talking about in them, and I think it's quite likely that they didn't have anything like Iamblichus is talking about in them, Nevertheless, I think they used the terms theurgia and theurgos quite a bit more than we have evidence for now. That's just a guess, though. At any rate, in our sources, this term is really associated and focused on the Chaldean oracles, which are probably 2nd century. But in the late 3rd century, the term reemerges into the light of history, and it reemerges in the works of the Platonist Porphyry and Iamblichus. With Iamblichus, we don't have to reconstruct anything because the De Mysterius talks about theurgy in a big way. His other works don't, incidentally, which presents its own problems. Porphyry, there's a lot more reconstruction to be doing, and we'll be doing it in the podcast. And after Iamblichus, the idea of theurgy, 
let's set aside the practice for a moment, becomes a mainstay of Platonist theory. It's central to Julian and Sallustius, to Proclus, Proclus's biographer Marinus, Hierocles of Alexandria. It, it appears in Damascius, though how central it is to him is an open question. And seemingly, it was uh, very popular among many others who no longer survive. Now, in this little survey, I'm summarizing a lot of evidential sifting. For a more complete view of the evidence, see the works in the recommended reading to this episode. So having summarized the curses of theurgy in late antiquity very briefly, let's turn to scholarly and other re-readings of this material. So ancient opinions of what theurgy was. In antiquity, it's with Iamblichus that we get our first attempt at a definition of theurgy. As keen listeners will recall, in episode 74, we discussed how the African Platonist Apuleius gave us our first philosophical redefinition of the Latin term magia, magic. Magia is not about illicit evil rituals. It is, or can be, an elite philosophical practice. Just as Plato had reinscribed the mysteries onto philosophy, in other words, Apuleius tried the same thing with magic. With Iamblichus, however, we don't see this. We're seeing something different. He's not rehabilitating the term magia. Instead, he has a new term to work with, theurgia, which he contrasts explicitly with goetheia, sorcery. Goetheia, according to Iamblichus, is indeed bad and a waste of time. Theurgia, on the other hand, is the culmination of divine philosophy and the only way for humans to transcend the material world and reunite with the noetic gods. You need rituals, but although, as many scholars have noted, these rituals almost all have parallels in known magical texts of antiquity, or at least their names do, terms like klesis, sustasis, anagoge, and others are familiar from the Greek magical papyri and from Iamblichus' description of theurgy, and indeed from the oracles, Iamblichus specifically states that, unlike Goetea, theurgy does not try to command the gods, which is anyway impossible but to invite them down to us, which then has the effect of elevating the soul out of the cosmos. Even when we seem to be commanding the gods, we really aren't. Now that implies, of course, that some of the uh, rituals the Yamblikin theurgists were using, on the face of it, were commanding the gods. But Yamblikus' point is, it seems like they are, but they aren't really. We'll get get more into that later. So that's one definition or the closest thing we have to a definition of theurgy from a practitioner. Now we can turn to St. Augustine. He is obviously aware of Porphyry's discussions of theurgy, for which works of Porphyry he's citing. We'll need to dive into some serious text stuff, which belongs in a special episode. But for the sake of the current discussion, we'll just say he's definitely engaging with Porphyry, talking about theurgy, though he's reading Porphyry in Latin translation. Augustine is aware of all these kinds of arguments, And he specifically says the art, which whether you call it magic, magia, or the more detestable name of goetia, or the more honorable name of theurgy, theurgia, it's all the same thing. In other words, you guys say you aren't doing magic, but you're doing magic. And magic is understood as illicit ritual practices directed at evil daimones. Even if you think you are addressing gods, Porphyry, you're not. You're addressing demons. Then, Proclus will add loads and loads of theoretical material to the subject of theurgy. 
which amounts, I would argue, to a new theoretical framing of theurgy, quite different from Iamblichus, although Proclus is always concerned to make it harmonize perfectly with the great Iamblichus. And then we have the Pseudo-Dionysius, probably writing in the 6th century after Proclus, but the Pseudo-D is a Christian, and theurgy for him is, simply put, Christian liturgy. The theory of effectiveness, why these rituals serve to bring the worshiper or practitioner closer to God, this theoretical material draws heavily on polytheist descriptions of theurgy found in Iamblichus and Proclus, but the rituals themselves are now the rituals which go on inside a Christian church. Nothing more and nothing less. Theurgy, then, was already a word to conjure with in late antiquity, with numerous different thinkers attempting to redefine or reclaim it for their tradition or imagined tradition. Now let's turn to modern scholarship, and we'll try very briefly to summarize some of the main lines of thought about theurgy. And here we're really talking about theurgy and antiquity. Let me emphasize here that this is not meant to be a briefing on the ins and outs of very complex arguments found in the scholarship surveyed, and certainly not a complete survey of the scholarship. And anyway, what counts as scholarship in this context? We want to include Ficino and Thomas Taylor in the discussion? Maybe we do. At any rate, this is just a hopefully useful survey of some very basic lines of argument out there. The first one is that theurgy is magic. That theurgy was magic was, as we've seen, already an idea being discussed in antiquity. The problem is, what do you mean by magic? For Augustine, that's clear. Evil demonic rituals. For Porphyry, I think it's a lot less clear. Um, and the term, anyway, doesn't hinge on the meaning of the word magic for Porphyry in his discussion about uh, ritual practices with Iamblichus. For modern scholars, the term has, as we know, a much more ambivalent meaning than it does for Augustine. The discussion of theurgy as magic really gets a kickstart from a 1942 article by Samson Eitrem, which noted the many parallels between practices described in the Greek magical papyri and practices at least alluded to in the Platonists under the rubric of theurgy, things like klesis, sustasis, and so forth. And his article basically made it obvious that there were many links between the practices referred to in the two types of texts, or at least the names given to practices were being used by both types of text. E.R. Dodds then put a major stamp on the scholarly discourse about theurgy in a 1947 article, which was then later reprinted as an appendix to his great The Greeks and the Irrational. Quote, the creator of theurgy was a magician, not a Neoplatonist. And the creator of Neoplatonism was neither a magician nor, pake certain modern writers, a theurgist. Plotinus is never described by his successors as a theurgos, nor does he use the term theurgia or its cognates in his writings, end of quote. Now, as is well known, Dodds, despite his incredibly uh, sympathetic interest in lots of oogly-boogly stuff from antiquity, nevertheless really thought of um, the story of late antiquity in terms of a decline of a pristine Greek rationalism, which very much was seen as foreshadowing the modern post-Enlightenment world. And so things like Iamblichus' theurgy are just an obvious bad move. Uh, a, a sign of decline. And that discourse has had a huge effect on scholarly understandings of theurgy ever since. If we look to uh, Dylan and Finnamore in their preface to Iamblichus's On the Soul, they say, 
quote, theurgy is really only magic with a philosophical underpinning, end of quote. Now, I think both of those scholars might moderate their take on that statement if they were interviewed about it now. And it's a good thing that we actually have an interview with John Finnamore, so we can put that to the test coming up in the podcast. Nevertheless, I think the remark of Peter Kingsley on this whole scholarly approach to magic and theurgy is very apposite. Quote, Previous scholars, including Dodds, have tended to marginalize the phenomenon of theurgy using all the familiar terms of abuse, such as rubbish and spineless syncretism, because it represented an obvious deviation from the norm of, quote, Greek rationalist tradition. And yet here, as elsewhere, it's important to restrict oneself to the facts. On the one hand, the notion of a monolithic Greek rational tradition is, in certain respects, just as mythical as it is real. Certainly, one finds nostalgia for such a tradition in some late writers, such as Plotinus during the course of his polemic against the Gnostics. But it's important to remember that this hankering after an ancient Hellenic tradition was based to a large extent on the often fundamental misinterpreting of the early literature in question. End of quote. Amen. So that is an example of the theurgy is the same thing as magic school of thought, often with the subcategory. Theurgy is the same thing as magic, but with a philosophical veneer thrown over it to make it more uh, palatable. We can then look at theurgy modeled as a religion in various senses. Um, the work of Levy is fundamental here. For Levy, in his great magnum opus about the theurges and theurgy, there really were Chaldaics, people who practiced the arts of the Chaldean oracles in the same way as someone might say that there were hermetists lying behind the philosophic or theoretical hermetica. The assumption is that all the references to theurgy found in our sources, Iamblichus, Julian, Proclus, and many others, can all be referred back to the Chaldean oracles, more or less, and are all referring to a single Chaldean sacrament. Now, the, ra the magic versus rationalism dichotomy is very present in Levy's work, but he is, on the whole, I would say, painting a picture of what we should rather call an esoteric religious grouping, practicing the immortalization of the soul as their central mystery, rather than magic, per se. Obviously, the old problem of modeling magic and religion comes up here, but I hope you get the idea. This is a general um, vibe you get from reading his great work on theurgy. Now, Sarah Isles Johnston has picked up on this approach to theurgy as religion and goes so far as to say, quote, theurgy, an esoteric revelatory religion that took as its authoritative basis the Chaldean oracles, dactylic hexameter poems that were divinely dictated to the sect's founders in the mid-2nd century CE, etc. She also says that theurgy, quote, began as and always remained a religion for the most intellectually and socioeconomically elite, end of quote. Now, how do we know that, I wonder? Iamblichus, sure, his, his take on theurgy is not going to appeal to the average woman in the street, but the Chaldean oracles don't necessarily imply such a highfalutin elite provenance, do they? Anyway, their hexameters are certainly not elite. They would uh, not have passed muster in a cultivated circle of rhetoricians or uh, poetry lovers, that's for sure. Uh, another scholar of ancient magical materials, primarily George Luck, sees theurgy 
as the emergence of new ritual techniques in response to the changing needs of late polytheist religion. Quote, The need of pagan believers to enter into direct contact with their gods led to the development of a certain technique or set of techniques codified during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, it seems, and given the name of theurgy. End of quote. Now, Naomi Janowitz disagrees, arguing that theurgy is a phenomenon of old rituals given new interpretations of ritual efficacy. But uh, both of these approaches to the remains of theurgy are arguing that this is a, a movement answering to new religious needs in the population of late antique uh, Greco-Roman world, and that they were forming something like you might call a new religion, even if it's a new religion made out of old materials, which new religions tend to be, don't they? Fowden writes, quote, Inevitably, their enemies accused the theurgists of being just magicians. After all, theurgy and magic manipulate the same network of universal sympathy by closely parallel techniques. But the theurgists' objective remains that of Plotinian philosophy, the purification and salvation of the soul. And indeed, Yamdukus says much less about the part played by ritual acts in describing the culmination of the soul's ascent than when discussing the earlier stages. By ritualizing these initial stages, Yamblichus made them more accessible than the stern and lonely way of the contemplative philosopher. But mystical union remained, as it had been for Plotinus, an intuitive leap that only a few would dare to make, and an experience to the description of which the vocabulary of the philosopher was less inadequate than that of the theurgist. Though it seems likely that Yamblichus had wanted, by fusing elements of cult and philosophy, to make polytheism more coherent and better able to resist Christian attack, in practice, theurgy remained the preoccupation of an elite, end of quote. So here's yet another take, I think a well-formed take, on the position of Yamblichan theurgy. And again, very much, although invoking the term magic, a form of religion or an, even a new religious movement rather than something that can best be described as magic. Now, theurgy as magic, theurgy as religion. These are two major approaches to this material. But there's a third approach, which we should mention, which really calls into question the whole scholarship on theurgy in the 20th century and the 21st century. Ilinka um, Tanasionu Dubler, whose name I am almost certainly mispronouncing, has observed that the term theurgy used as a sort of meta-level term for the study of late antique theurgy has many pitfalls, and she's right about this. And she's also taken a kind of minimalist approach to questions like how Chaldean was Yamblichus, how much real continuity can we say there was between um, Yamblichus's rich, theoretical, philosophically nuanced explanation of theurgy and how it works and why it works and why it's good and all that kind of stuff and what we find in the Chaldean oracles and she's really uh, stripped back the debate quite a bit in her book theurgy in late antiquity from 2013 we also have two as yet unpublished in book form phd theses one by fernandez fernandez and one by marshall which really are properly minimalist and if you want to look at the evidence not only for theurgy in antiquity, but also for the later evolutions of the term theurgy in Western esotericism and scholarship that we talked about earlier in this episode. These three works, Tanseonu Dubler, Fernandez Fernandez, and Marshall, are the place to look at. 
because they really do take the term theurgy and kind of pull back the focus and go, what the hell does this thing mean anyway? And note its use in all kinds of weird contexts, like the study of Tibetan Buddhism or uh, ancient Judaism or you name it. So with that in mind, this sort of deconstruction of the scholarly edifice that's come before, we might find ourselves floating in a bit of a limbo as to what this theurgy stuff is supposed to be. That's why here at the Schwepp, we like to go back to the sources. So we're going to bring a discussion of what Yamblikos actually says theurgy is to bear on the earlier treatment we had of the Chaldean oracles and see what we can say about any connections there might be between the two and what we can make of theurgy as Yamblikos puts it. The aim of this episode has been wide focus before we even begin to deal with theurgy as presented by Yamblikos, we want to reflect on the fact that the term is alive and well in contemporary Western esotericism, and that it's sometimes used in scholarship as a second-order term, with the implication that we all agree on what it means, which is far from being the case. And we've, as we've seen in this episode, even in antiquity, this term theurgy was already a contested term, and a term that lots of people wanted to co-opt for their own uses, right? From Christians to polytheists. Now we're ready to talk about the place where theurgy really gets defined in the first place, Yamblichus's response to Porphyry, a.k.a. the De Mysteriis, our single best source for the theory of ritual practice from antiquity. The fact that this ritual practice is an esoteric method for elevating the soul and engaging in self-deification only makes things better. But before we get to all that, we must be boring, as is the Schwepp way, and take some time to introduce Iamblichus himself, the man, the myth, his philosophy, and his extraordinary influence on later thought. Join us next time when we do just that. And in the meantime, make like the secret Chaldean words which Proclus tells us can separate the body from the soul and stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>